Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. Are we alone in the universe? It's a question that astronomers and, quite frankly, many others have long wondered as they stare up into the night sky. To look for life beyond Earth, you first need to identify the places that it could be. For decades, astronomers have looked for clues of life on Mars, Venus, and even on the various moons of our solar system. Touch on confirmed. Perseverance safely on the surface of Mars, ready to begin seeking the sands of past life. In 1995, though, their search entered a new phase. That year, scientists found the first clear evidence of a planet orbiting another star. 51 Pegasi b was half the size of Jupiter, and it was zooming around a star that was 50 light-years away from Earth. Since then, more than 5,000 exoplanets have been found, everything from tiny, rocky, Earth-like worlds to giant balls of gas that look a lot more like Jupiter or Neptune. There are probably billions, if not trillions, of these planets in our galaxy. Could some of them be harbouring life? Hello and welcome to Babbage from The Economist. I'm Alok Jha, The Economist's science and technology editor. This is the first of two episodes on the grand scientific quest to search for life beyond Earth. Today we talk to Didier Kelo, the scientist who identified the first exoplanet back in 1995, about how he made that discovery and how that set him on the path to where he is now, hunting for the origin of life on Earth. You know, this is science. We have to be humble. We're just looking at the universe and sometimes you find something which opens a lot of big windows on the universe and that's what we've done. When Didier Kello was a PhD student at the University of Geneva, he worked under the supervision of the astrophysicist Michel Mayor. Together, they had designed an instrument that could very precisely measure the speeds and positions of nearby stars. Didier was watching how a star called 51 Pegasi was moving and wobbling around when he found evidence that it had an orbiting planet, the first known planet beyond our solar system. It was an important moment in the history of astronomy. The Royal Swedish Academy of Sciences has today decided to award the 2019 Nobel Prize in Physics with one half to James Peebles for theoretical discoveries in physical cosmology and the other half jointly to Michel Mayor and Didier Quillot for the discovery of an exoplanet 
orbiting a solar-type star. Today, DDA leads the Centre for the Origin and Prevalence of Life at ETH Zurich, a Swiss university. He's also the co-director of the Levy-Hume Centre for Life in the Universe at the University of Cambridge. In my conversation with Didier, we began by talking about the astonishing work he did right at the start of his career. So it looked like an accident, but it's not actually. And for my supervisor, he decided that was a good time for him to finally have a sabbatical time. So he took a sabbatical, he went in 94, went to Hawaii and told me, here's the key of the equipment, have fun with the machine, start the program. And for me, it was fun because I was the end of my PhD. So I was quite happy and I went there and I started observing, let's say, a dozen of stars. You observe the star, you record the speed, you take a note of the speed. And the day after, or two days after, you observe the star again. And what you expect is essentially nothing except they're the same value. And you use these two values and they give you the value, and the mean value that, um, that you want to record. And then you do that the month after and then two months later and three months later. And you expect to see a tiny change with the time. Well, it's not at all what I saw. <laughs> I started observing that stars, and then three days later, I reobserve it, and then I saw a completely different value. And I say, oh my God, what's going on? Uh, maybe I made a mistake. I didn't observe the right stars. Can happen, you know? And then I reobserve it again, and then the value was completely different. It was not even similar to the first one or the second one. It's completely different. And I say, what the hell is going on? And that time, I start really to panic because it was not at all what you expect with a machine that you have built to be extremely accurate and to produce exactly the same value every time. And it was the case for most of the star, but not that one. So what did you initially think was going on? I thought there were a bug somewhere in the software. I had the wrong coordinate or anything really wrong in the stars. And I get really hooked by this and I really wanted to understand what was going on. And then at some time in my mind, I realized that there may be a good reason why there is such a change. Maybe there's a planet orbiting that star. And then the consequence was huge because given the kind of rate of change that I would see and the speed of this change from one couple of nights to another, the consequence is that planets should be very close to the star. And this kind of system doesn't exist. But in my mind, I was young and naive and fresh. I say, why not? Maybe this is what I found. Maybe I found a planet orbiting a star. Let's keep measuring and making sure I really understand the stuff. And I really got obsessed until I was able to predict the motion of the star. Until the point, eventually, when I got the solutions. And I was very proud of that, very excited. I say, okay, now I understand what happened with that star. I think I found a planet. I will communicate that to my professor. I didn't say anything until then, because I was so embarrassed. And then I sent a fax to Michel at that time. I said, Michel, I think I found a planet. Answer from Michel, yeah, maybe, let's see, anyway, I'm coming back. And in a couple of weeks, it was the end of his sabbatical. And he didn't believe me, actually, but it was nice. The story you've told there is quite interesting because the, what you discovered, uh, what we know now, of course, is that uh, 51 Pegasi B is a, a planet that's enormous. It's half the size of Jupiter in terms of its radius. And it tears around its star every four or five days. It absolutely you know, moves so quickly. And it's, of course, nothing like we've seen in the solar system. But since then... We've discovered thousands of exoplanets um, in, in various different ways. Did you expect that in so many decades we'd have this many confirmed exoplanets and possibly there's going to be millions and billions more in the coming years? Well, frankly, yes and no. You will see why. First, when we produced the planet, I think I was convinced that was the only way to explain the data. I was absolutely sure what I did. Well, the problem at that time is nobody believed us for a couple of years. And it's fair to say it was rough 
rough for me. And I remember a reaction from people. I say, oh, theory doesn't predict that. It's just bullshit. Because I was fully aware how awkward was that planet was impossible, according to the theory that we all had learned in the past, based on the solar system, that something was wrong somewhere. And I produced a picture during my PhD defense. It was an iceberg. And I say, look, I think I just found the tip of the iceberg. And because we found a planet so unusual, I would be surprised that we're not finding other, even more unusual than this one. So in a way, I was expecting the field to be filled of unusual planet. Now, to be fair, I had not expected that there would be so many in the sense that we now know that the majority, the vast majority of the planet in the universe are different from the solar system. I don't think nobody would have seriously guessed that, that the solar system is not the standard scenario. I suppose when you live in the solar system and that's all you know, you assume that that's what the rest of the uh, planetary systems are like. But I suppose what we've learned in the last few decades is that uh, the solar system is one planetary system and there are many, many that are nothing like it at all. That must have been a surprise as, as we start to sort of count the number of planets we see out there and begin to understand their compositions, that when you take a census of the planets, that actually we don't have the most common type of planet in, in our solar system. Yeah, that's what I call the gift of nature. Um, in a sense, the field has blossomed thanks to the fact that there is plenty of planets that are not the same as the solar system because the planet of the solar system are very difficult to get. But a planet exactly like the Earth with uh, that takes one year to orbit the star now is failing to be detected so far. I mean, we're working hard. We're going to find them, pretty sure. Um, they will not be zero. There must be some. But we have been lucky that there has been so many different kinds of planets producing this growth of the field as we know it and using now 25% of the James Webb Space Telescope for observation of the atmospheres. I mean, looking ahead, the number of experiments and missions and uh, telescopes that are being built to try and look for exactly these things must be quite astonishing for you to see, given that you and your colleagues invented this field. It must be quite a moment. Yeah, well, you know, this is science. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we, we have to be humble. We, we're just looking at the universe and uh, sometimes you find something which opens a lot of big windows on the universe and that's what we've done. We have started a process by finding a planet that was rather easy to detect, by the way, but all this has completely changed the perspective. So we have a complete uh, different perspective on the solar system and think about Similar stories in the 40s, when we realized that all the galaxies, there were different galaxies uh, far apart. Think about when we realized the expansion of the universe and think when we realized that the Earth was just a sphere and not flat. I mean, think at the moment when we had a clear insight that we would really orbit around the sun and not the sun orbiting around us. I mean, it's all part of the same mechanism. I think there is a moment when... You see something and what you see completely changing your perspective on how you understand what you are. Think about the DNA. I mean, how far is changing completely the perspective on how life works. We did that, um, as many other scientists have done. So in that sense, we have been lucky that we trigger something big. But, but it's not a big surprise because the universe is just waiting to be detected and discovered. That's what we're doing and we're doing very well, actually. Shifting gear slightly, I'd like to talk about your current centres that you've set up for the origins of life. How did you get interested in that topic? I mean, it's also something right at the edge of science where we don't really understand where life on Earth first started from. And how does that all link to your astrophysics research? Well, 30 years ago, when we detected the first planet, as you said, it's a rusted Jupiter, essentially. It's grill, it's very hot. But the first question we had at that time, is there life on this system? So it seems that the connection between the fact that the planet and the potential of life or any of this system is embedded into this topic. 
So the idea of life on other planet, it's a very old question. And the fact we're detecting planet, it becomes a bit more acute in a sense. So this is the first reason. The second one is the technology which is studying life has tremendously changed in the last 20 years. I mean, remember when we were talking about building the first human genome, it was seen as a prowess and it would take how many people for how many years to do that? Well, why not it takes 10 minutes? You take a swab send it into a machine, 10 minutes later, you get the full uh, sequencing of your DNA. So the biochemistry of life on Earth has made tremendous progress. And I think we're reaching a stage when we can start asking the questions. I mean, how do you make it from first principle? Because right now, it's kind of a full development system we have right now on Earth. It's a kind of a perfection in a way. Well, how do you start all that? How do you start with something which is incomplete and how do you work this through? That's also going things happening. The third one is, I mean, we have a robot right now exploring Mars and not only exploring and digging out and collecting samples. And in 10 years, this sample would be back here. And Mars is quite fascinating because we're pretty sure that for the first billion years of Mars, it was rather similar to the first billion years of Earth. And we know that life started during this first billion years on Earth. So we can imagine that why not life have started as well on Mars. And if this is the case... Well, you may expect to find some chemical traces. I'm not even dreaming about fossil, but at least chemical traces on the effect of life. So these three elements together are creating a situation which is unique right now because these three group of people that addressed and can try to get some answers about origin of life and prevalence of life in the universe. And this is why we've started the center, because we felt that we have way more to learn from each other that we have done in the past, and we need to think between the different disciplines. We'll hear more from Didier a little later on. He'll tell us where he'd send spacecraft if he was in charge of future space missions. First, though, we'll speak to the researcher who co-leads, with Didier, the University of Cambridge's Centre for Life in the Universe. Emily Mitchell is a zoologist, and we'll find out why she's now looking to the stars. That's all coming up. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Today on Babbage, we're hunting for life beyond Earth. We kicked off the show by asking Exoplanets expert Didier Kello why he's changed the focus of his academic career to try to answer the most tantalising question in all of astrobiology. In 2022, Didier Kello established the Centre for Origin and Prevalence of Life at the Swiss University, ETH Zurich. It was his bid to start a new adventure. At the University of Cambridge, Didier is already the co-director of the Leverhulme Centre for Life in the Universe with Emily Mitchell. Emily is also an ecologist and paleontologist in the university's Department of Zoology. The two researchers, along with colleagues from the universities of Chicago and Harvard, announced a new Origins Federation, an even bigger international collaboration. 
we spoke to Emily to understand why now is the time to bring researchers together to explore this vast topic. We've had really amazing breakthroughs happening across all the different sciences. So in astronomy, starting with Didier Kalos, finding the first exoplanet back in 95, we now have over 5,000 exoplanets within prebiotic chemistry, making amazing breakthroughs about how we go from abiotic to potentially biotic life. And then within Earth sciences, it's really exciting when we start to think about the work that's been done on Mars, because we're actually going there and exploring so here on Earth, because we have plate tectonics, a lot of the history of the Earth has been destroyed, whereas on Mars it's still complete. So we've got a much more complete rock record, which means when we're looking for evidence of life, it's much more likely to be preserved there than it was potentially here on Earth. And with the tantalising possibility of evidence of life potentially being brought back from Mars in terms of samples, Samples from Mars are expected to return to Earth in about a decade's time. It'll be an exciting moment for planetary scientists, but it will take the work of scientists like Emily to paint a fuller picture of how life might have started on Earth. My research is very much focused on understanding the origins of animals here on Earth, which is really quite unusual because when we think of life on Earth, we have evidence of life going back over four billion years. But for the first three and a half billion years or so, life was just microbial. So there wasn't a huge amount going on. And then suddenly, around 600 million years ago, during the Ediacaran time period, you suddenly start to see all these complex life forms and indeed animals appear. But we don't know what's triggering this and we don't know what's causing the animals, if anything's causing them indeed at all to evolve. So it's possible that maybe animals evolved by random chance, but we don't know this because we don't understand what's driving their evolution. Now this is relevant when we're thinking about life elsewhere, because when we start to think about what alien lives will look like, most people immediately think of things like us, so human-like forms. Whereas actually, if we look back at the history of life on Earth, most of that life has been microbial. So if we think about life on other planets, if we just assume in the first instance that life elsewhere will follow exactly the same patterns as here on Earth, we'd be expecting most of life to be microbial. And so this is why I'm interested in understanding and thinking about the evolution of life elsewhere. I'm interested in thinking what's driving the origins of animals here on Earth and how might that translate to other planets. The collaboration of scientists from different fields, ranging from chemistry to philosophy, can lead to some interesting conversations in the lab. For example, if as a zoologist, as a paleontologist, when I'm thinking about the timeline of the history of life on Earth, I start here and now with us humans, because obviously biology, this is where we're at. And so the Earth formed about four and a half billion years ago. But if you're an astronomer, you start with the formation point of the Earth. So you start with that being zero, and then you move forward in time. So we're currently at 4.5 billion years going forward. And so what's quite funny about that is it had some really funny conversations very early on, talking about how animals evolved around 600 million years, which is a huge amount of time <laughs> in the history of life on Earth without animals. But for astronomers, they're like, whoa, that's really quick. Like we get the Earth and then we get, we get animals like really quickly. And it's like, no, <laughs> we're just using different systems. So there is a certain amount of kind of getting used to the slightly different systems that people use. Nevertheless, the researchers are excited for what the future holds in this field. Emily, in particular, is looking forward to the search for biosignatures. These are molecules or other characteristics that many scientists think can be used as evidence for life. 
if we start getting a lot of different biosignatures over the next few decades, which hopefully we would, what we can then do is start using this information to actually understand how evolution works. So we know that animals have evolved here on Earth, but we also know that it took a very, very long time for that to happen. And it's not clear whether it took a long time for animals to evolve because we got quite unlucky here on Earth. And actually, if we look at other planets, we're going to find animals developing a lot quicker or evolving a lot quicker or alternatively, maybe it's actually really, really hard to make animals. There are many, many different ways to get multicellular organisms, and the vast majority of those are nothing like animals. They're small little microbial, little chains of cells, and that's a very different thing. But maybe we just got really, really lucky evolving here on Earth, and we'll find dozens or hundreds or even thousands of biosignatures and actually no evidence of complex life like us and it will all be microbial. And so to me, while it is a a very long-term kind of, I guess, dream to some extent or hypothesis, the idea, the possibility that we could be finding multiple different signatures and using that information to really understand how evolution works is what's the the most kind of tantalising possibilities. But finding those biosignatures will require scientists to probe deeper into space, targeting precise parts of celestial bodies with highly advanced pieces of kit. Didier Kello, who we heard from earlier, is looking to search for life in places such as the moons of Saturn, Titan and Enceladus. He also wants to know more about the possible signs of life on Earth's closest planetary neighbour, Venus. Looking for biosignatures is not an easy task, though. Life on Earth is based on amino acids, DNA and proteins, and all of the metabolism happens in the presence of water. But although water might be present for life elsewhere, the other building blocks could be different on another planet. With so much uncertainty, I asked Didier, how can we even define what life is? You will have... As many definitions how you want to look for life, that's a challenge. You can have a functional definition, you can have a description, you can have an impact factor. I mean, what's the impact on life, on the environment? And the tree would give you a different kind of answer. Is that not a problem, though? <laughs> no, it's not a problem. I think it's not because the problem is complicated. It's a problem. It's called a complicated problem. That's it. <laughs> so <laughs> l- let's go back about what you're asking. First, about the ingredients. I think you, you have a point by uh, telling that there must be a, a connection between the ingredient of life. That's absolutely valid. But hopefully, I mean, uh, the universe is helping you on that because we kind of know the ingredients. Your universe creates essentially hydrogen. Bit of helium, bit of lithium, nothing else. Well, with that comes time, space, uh, the four forces, and maybe something we don't really understand, which is dark energy and dark matter. We don't know really what it is right now. But that's it. Nothing else. And then, miracle. You start to have the stars, and the stars are beautiful machines because they are making the universe way more interesting. You start producing the, all the chemicals, you have all the elements, and one of them are very interesting, called carbon, oxygen, nitrogen, and so on, and so on, and so on. Now, when you have the oxygen and the hydrogen, that comes very naturally to making water. So water is nothing special. Water, there is everywhere water in the universe. It comes for free, you point a radio telescope, you pick water in clouds, on planets, even in stars. And water, we know it's really great 
as a solvent to make chemistry. So the idea, you have water everywhere, carbon everywhere, I mean, all this everywhere. So there's no reason why you would not be missing some, some pieces. That's something that could be a bit more difficult to get if you expect to have some volcanic activities. So I would agree, then maybe you need some volcanic activities, or likely it is. Well, maybe we can find out. By looking at other planets, we may be able to find out whether they are volcanically active. That would be a very fascinating result. And that's not something that is irrelevant for the solar system. You may have seen recently, we have clear indication that uh, Venus is volcanically active. So this idea of volcanic activity is key. Now, the fact you have continent, well, that's a very interesting question. If you don't have continent, then you have a problem to explain the origin of life. Just, just explain that a little bit. Well, why is the continent so important? Because if you expect to have the origin of life on the surface of the planet, into river and on lake, on the UV radiation that you get for free from the sun, you need to be sitting out of the water because the UV doesn't come down in the water. The only way to get energy into the water is to get this uh, thermal vent and to have the bottom of the oceans. But if you need the UV flux from the star, you need to have continents. So you can imagine rocky planet full of water without any continent. That would be a serious problem. So just to clarify there, on Earth, we have these hydrothermal vents at the bottom of the ocean, which are basically cracks in the seafloor where energy from below the crust is spewing out into the seawater. There's lots of hot water, there's lots of minerals, there's lots of movement going around and lots of life likes to live around there now. And you can imagine very early in the history of life that it's the kind of place where there's lots of energy and materials that the first cells might have been created from. Um, but if you've got a planet that doesn't have that kind of hydrothermal vent on the seafloor, then the star's energy wouldn't be able to get to the bottom of the ocean. So what I'm trying to explain here is the idea of biomarker is a buzzword. I think we don't have any biomarker seriously, except the one of the, in the Earth, like oxygen and nitrogen. And you can say, oh, if you find exactly the same kind of atmosphere that the one we have on Earth, you may guess, well, it's likely there is something similar going on. But what about a small deviation of that? That would be more difficult. And I think the question is more to build up the knowledge. We are at the stage that we have not understood the big picture yet. We want to understand the basic, the foundations. So you need the question of life is not about finding life. It's about trying to understand what are the minimum conditions you need to enable life. And this minimum condition is something you can test in the lab. You can test in the record of Mars. You may find out into Venus, if you look for life into Venus. You may find in Titan, in Enceladus. And then we give you a kind of a range of possibilities, what you should be looking at. And then you look what you have on plenty of other planets. But the idea you have this simple one-to-one, -one, oh, this is a biosignature, this is what it is life, and this is what it looks like. I think this is too naive. The project you've just described is a complex one, as you said. It's physics, it's uh, geology, geophysics, it's, it's biology, as well as obviously instrumentation. I mean, th these are not fields that typically have come together in a grand project like this. And I just wonder, are there differences in the way that these different disciplines work that make it difficult to sort of put these projects together? I and mean, the fact that they exist is a great thing. Uh, and I just wonder how you and, and colleagues in your centres manage those differences. Well, you know, the beauty of science, we're speaking the same language, which is the language of the facts. So we don't have to deal with different rational way of thinking. This is the same way of thinking. Have you had to learn a lot of biology? You're an astrophysicist. I wonder how hard that's been. I have to understand what these people are doing. And I can tell you, it is fun. 
<laughs> you know, learning. Not complicated. You know, you know, learning is half our business. Anyway, we keep learning every time because science is the front end. It's always the edge. You're always at the edge. If you don't have the feeling you're almost about to fall, it means you're not doing science anymore. If you want to get this feeling, you have to know what's going on. And it means sometimes you have to go back to the basic. And, it, you know, it's, it's, it's a way your, your brain is working. You're, you're alert. You're willing to learn. Let's talk about a mission that's about to go up into space. The European Space Agency is sending JUICE, the Jupiter Icy Moons Explorer. And um, this mission sort of sits squarely within all of the things we've just been talking about in terms of looking for life on uh, interesting bodies of our solar system. So it will go around the icy moons of Jupiter and study them and look for signs of life. Can you just talk to me about why that's such an important mission for the kinds of work you and your colleagues in the astrobiology community are doing? And, and what are you hoping to get in terms of results? Well, you know, it's always difficult to overplan too much. So I, I tend to be careful about this kind of mission because there is a part which is in a way control and we know exactly what we do when you go for gravity, a magnetic field and, and systematic study on the atmosphere. And there is a, another part which is a bit more exploratory when you want to understand, you want to deep down and have a look what is under the clouds and you don't really know what you find. So it's really exploration here. It's exploration like it was in the 17th century when you explore a new territory and uh, some jungle. Uh, new kind of trees. So this is the purpose of it, is collecting information and exploration there. Now, I keep saying that solar system is the only place when we can go and look and bring back stuff. And there's no other way to do that. So of course, we should promote any mission solar system. It's challenging to go to the icy moon of giant planet. It's very far away. It's very expensive. Um, myself, I would love to have more mission going to Venus and Mars, which is going to happen in the future, because it would cost much less money than a very expensive mission to giant planet. But some of these uh, giant planets are unique. And Titan and Saladus, I was mentioning the two, and they, they're unique. So Juice will be part of this category and exploring further uh, these systems with the idea to find out maybe different conditions and finding what you can get in different chemistry conditions. We have to bear in mind that the giant planet or the history of the solar system, they have not changed that much. So they're storing essentially everything about the origin of the solar system. So that's why we're still interested by this big body that looks a bit, uh, a bit dull uh, compared to going to Venus and going to Mars. When you think about, oh, I want to go to Mars and to find ETs there. But this is what it is. I mean, they are really uh, a key to understand the formation of the solar system. Which moons is the JUICE mission going to go to? And are you interested in any of them? I don't think JUICE is going to my favourite moods, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> so, so to me, I don't expect a dramatic element about the origin of life from this, but I want to go to Titan. I want to go to Enceladus. I want to land on Titan. I want to just go on Enceladus. And I think NASA is planning that. Okay, so you want to go to Titan and Enceladus, some of the moons of Saturn. Why do you think they're the most interesting places in our solar system? Titan is because the atmosphere of Titan is the same that we believe was at the origin on the Earth. When you have a lot of uh, infall of uh, asteroids, you create uh, this very special atmosphere with ammonia. And that is one of the kind of atmosphere that has been tested, a highly reduced atmosphere that is creating an amazing chemistry, a prebiotic chemistry. So there is a very fascinating prebiotic chemistry going on on Titan. And we don't really know what's going on. Enceladus, we know that there is water on Enceladus. And we know there is plumes. We know that there is a lot of fascinating chemistry going on. 
We have not a single idea what exactly is the chemistry, but the few elements we have, uh, it's a zillion of forest of uh, interesting molecules that we know are being produced by these planets, and we know so little of them. So in terms of the ranking list, in terms of study the prebiotic conditions for early life in the solar system, these are the two sites when we should go, in addition to Venus and Mars. Could you not learn something about Enceladus, um, one of Saturn's moons, from Europa, which is one of the Jupiter moons that will be visited by JUICE? I mean, Enceladus and Europa are similar in the sense that there's probably a global ocean, there's minerals down there somewhere, and they're covered in a thick layer of ice. I mean, obviously they're different because they're orbiting different planets, so their radiation environments are quite different. But is there not some similarity there? Europa, the problem is that it's very strong icy core, and uh, it's not very clear how much flow you have from the interior of the icy core, and you can pick it up. That's not very clear to me, whether you can really explore the interior of the planet. While Enceladus, we see the plumes. We just see it. It's there. It's like... A, it's a clue. Every time it's there, and then you have a lot of stuff. <laughs> just go. That sounds very tantalizing. Europa, I don't really know. Uh, there is some, some people that are claiming that there are some, um, some, some liquid... There is some cracks, and you see sometimes some of the stuff going out of the cracks. So there is a hope that they're going to look at this and to study them. So I don't really know. Um, my my current understanding is it's not the most likely uh, place when you have to find something interesting. But again, I would be delighted to be proven wrong here. Given what you know now and what you're learning and what your colleagues are learning in the astrobiology community, do you think that right now there is life somewhere else beyond Earth? Well, it's a very interesting question because as a physicist, the origin of life seems to be so quick and so easy in terms of ingredients you need to kickstart life. So I'm pretty confident that there should be plenty of startup of life everywhere. And when you have a rocky planet with a similar condition that we had at the origin of the solar systems, and you can imagine this is applicable to Venus and Mars as well. So this is why it's so critical to understand this planet, because that would be able to answer that questions how likely it is to kickstart life. And I would say it's very, very likely because it started up way too early on, on the solar system and on the Earth. Now, the next question is when you start, does it mean you will survive and you will keep going on? And we clearly see on Mars and Venus, I don't think there is any right now. Again, I can be proven wrong, but <laughs> it's not likely right now. And it's only on Earth. So the fact when you start it doesn't mean you will continue it. And then... The fact that you may sustain it and to continue grow doesn't mean that you have the conditions to become uh, visible. And we are very visible. I mean, in a way, since two billion years, anybody looking at the Earth would see if something is going on. Does it mean that this is happening everywhere? And that we can test because we can detect the rise of oxygen at that amount on other planets. So that is testable. Now, from the rise of oxygen, does it mean that you will produce animals? Because it came very late in the story, it's only half a billion years that we have this growth of uh, the diversity, all these animals and everything, and then dinosaurs and ourselves. So this is not sure. Maybe you need a series of events that allow you to reach this. So on one hand, I believe life is a very common, and I tend to believe it's imprinted into the law of physics of the universe, like is the stars and the creation of all the atomic elements. And the fact we are there, looking at the universe, demonstrate that if it happened once, it has to happen at least many times. So life is imprinted into the universe. That was a very thoughtful answer, but you dodged my question. 
I wanted to know if you think there is life out there. Are you yeah, given a very constructive answer? Yes. yes. <laughs> okay, good. It was a yes. It was a very complete answer. It was a yes, but it, de- it depends what you think about life. Yeah, that's what Fantastic. I Fantastic. <laughs> I'm going to hold you to that. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for your time today. And Professor Kulo, when you do win the Nobel Prize next time for <laughs> Discovering Life Elsewhere, please come back on the program to talk to us about it more. <laughs> Thank you. In just over a week, the European Space Agency's JUICE mission will launch to visit the icy moons of Jupiter. As well as providing some new images and measurements from these moons, scientists will be looking through the data for clues of life. Didier might prefer missions to other parts of the solar system, such as Venus or some of Saturn's moons. But nonetheless, JUICE will provide a lot of useful data for astronomers like him. The thing you have to remember with this kind of astrobiology is it's a branch of science that doesn't actually have anything to study at the moment. You know, we haven't found any aliens. So in the past maybe sort of 20 years, these kind of icy moons have really become the the sort of new hotness in the search for life. We don't know a huge amount about Jupiter, so it'll be interesting to see what happens when it gets there. That's The Economist's deputy science editor, Tim Cross. We'll hear more from him when we focus on the JUICE mission next time on Babbage. Our thanks to Didier Kello and Emily Mitchell. And thank you for listening to Babbage. Don't forget that you can get a free 30-day subscription to The Economist if you don't have one already by heading to economist.com slash podcast offer. The link is in the show notes. If you're already a subscriber, thank you. That's all for this week. Next time, we'll continue hunting for life elsewhere in the universe with a whole episode on the European Space Agency's JUICE mission. Babbage is produced by Jason Hoskin, with mixing and sound design this week by Timo Seiler. The executive producer is Marguerite Howell. I'm Alok Jha, and in London, this is The Economist. This is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024.